0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, be reading verses 1 through 45. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when, true, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to your word, your saints. Those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've drank of these waters. We know how they well up. We know there is no other water that can quench our thirst than this. We were just as unworthy as this Samaritan woman. And you had mercy. And you bid us come. You drew us just as you drew her. And we've drank. We've tasted. We have eternal life. Father, I pray... Your Spirit would would move us to joyfully leave, reflecting on this all afresh, to tell others, come, see. This is the Messiah. Father, as those who've tasted, I pray every soul here is expressing this longing with me now, adding their amen to this request. We cry out for those who are among us today that they have never tasted. They do not know this gift, they do not know Christ, they have not asked. Father, we plea, your spirit would blow, would convict, would open their eyes, and they by your word would know, as they're hearing these truths, they would know with whom they're really dealing with in your word. That Christ is right here beside them. They would know who He is, and they would ask. And they would know that they would know, they would ask knowing that if they ask, He will give. And they would drink of these waters. We plead this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here we have this long narrative and a long conversation with all kinds of twists and turns. And yet, Jesus drives every one of these twists and turns straight to a destined end. Upon reflection, it is clear, this is no meandering, leisurely Sunday stroll to find out where this back road might lead. Neither is it a nervous attempt to keep heading north, though every road doesn't seem to let you go where you want to go. Each turn that we encounter in this conversation is never a detour, but the straightest path to exactly where Jesus wants it to go. And this is something of where you should arrive if you go on this journey with the text. If you are an unbelieving sinner, Jesus, by His Word, today, right now, bids you drink from the well of Christ The living waters of the Holy Spirit welling up into eternal life. These waters that He holds out. If you are a disciple of Christ, He, the Savior of the world, bids you look up and see fields that are right to harvest into which He is sending you. Now, the setting of our text... To grasp the significance of what's happening, you need to realize that the setting is not just geographical, it is volitional. I mean that to understand this, you need to see the setting as concerning not just where, but why. You don't just need to look outside of Jesus to grasp what the setting is. You need to look to some degree inside of Jesus to grasp what this setting is so we'll consider where broadly and then we'll consider why it's the motivation and then we'll return to where and consider it narrowly and then we will also see shortly the win of this setting so where is jesus Broadly considered. Our starting point is the Judean wilderness. Verse 3, he left Judea. This, as we already noted, where Jesus was in chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. He was baptizing disciples in the Judean wilderness, though now it's plain. He himself wasn't baptizing, but his disciples acting as his agents were. Verse 2. And so we begin in the Judean wilderness, that's the start point, the end destination as far as our narrative is concerned is Samaria. Samaria was the, or became, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel under the rule of Omri, king of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 16, and in time Samaria came to refer not just to the capital but to the region, in the time of Christ specifically that region between Judea and the south, Galilee and the north, both with a large population of Jews, and in between Samaria and the Samaritans. The Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and in doing so, she deported the native Israelites and spread them to the neighboring kingdoms under the rule, and then put a mixture of other people she had conquered in Israel. It was a brilliant way to keep the conquered subservient and to keep them from rebelling. With this, the foreigners now inhabiting Samaria polluted the land with their idolatry, and so Yahweh sent lions among them, and thus this word came to the king of Assyria. The nations that you've carried away... And placed in the cities of Samaria, do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. 2 Kings 17.26. And so the king, likely Sargon II, replied, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. And the result is a synchristic mix of Pagan idolatry and biblical truth. By the time of Christ, it would appear that those of Israel that were left in the land and those who brought into the land have so intermingled they're no longer distinguished. And although much of the pagan, the overt pagan idolatry has been purged. Samaritan religion is both selective and inventive in comparison to the Old Testament text and faithful obedience towards it. It's selective in that they only receive the Pentateuch as Scripture. First five books of the Bible, that's that's Scripture and that alone. And it's inventive because the Samaritan Pentateuch differs in some significant ways from the hebrew scriptures of the jews they highlighted themselves in a way that elevated them above their jewish neighbors and the jewish attitude toward the samaritans can be seen in our text but i think it's really vivid in the response of the jews to jesus in john 8:48 Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Isn't that quite a a joint statement? You're so evil, you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. That's the pairing. Now, why? That's where broadly considered. Why is Jesus in Samaria? Why is he? Determined to go there. Three reasons. First, he learned something. He heard that they had heard. The Pharisees here, he's making more disciples than John and baptizing them. Jesus receiving this intelligence report. Left Judea, departed again for Galilee, verse 3. Now you read the Gospels, all of them through. And it is plain in every one of them. When Jesus does things like this, it is not because of fear. So why is he doing this? And it's also plain when you read them. It's because it's not yet his hour. Things are being orchestrated and perfectly timed. Jesus will light the fuse that leads to his crucifixion, but it will happen on cue as this symphony has been arranged. Second, Jesus passes through Samaria to go back to Galilee, verse 3. He left Judea, departed again for Galilee, verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. I'm sure every one of you who have grown up, any amount of time in church have heard that the Jews so hated the Samaritans that they would cross the Jordan into the region known as the Transjordan which is Gentile country journey north and then cross back over just south of Galilee into Galilee avoiding the Samaritans while the Jews did despise the Samaritans And while it's very likely that there was some prejudice so strong that they opted for that route, and that was an available route, it was taken, D.A. Carson has argued very convincingly via Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, that although the Jews hated the Samaritans, they did not hate them as much as they loved their own feet. And so it was actually the shorter direct route that was preferred. Jesus is passing through Samaria to get to Galilee. And that's true. But he is no chicken. And he does so for more reasons than to simply get to the other side. Yes, this is the preferred direct route, but Jesus had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. Now John, as fond as he is of depth of meaning, I think as you read this text, it becomes clear this is more than a geographical necessity of passing through Samaria. This is more than to get from point A to point C. You must go through point B, and that's the easiest, direct, and preferred route. Why does Jesus have to pass through Samaria? He passes through Samaria to eat. Verse 34. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Jesus passes through Samaria because the Father has food laid out for Him there. And that food is the work of His Father. What is the Work that the Father has for Jesus in Samaria. Verse 23 The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus goes through Samaria to eat. And the food that's laid out for him by the Father to eat is a work. The very work that the Father's doing. What is the work that the Father's doing? The Father is seeking worshipers. Jesus is sent to gather them. Jesus was, at the very inception of His ministry, driven by the Spirit out into the Judean wilderness to fast. And now, he's going through Samaria to do the work of his father to feast. And this leads us to consider where more narrowly. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, verse 5, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And doing so, he comes to a geographical gold mine of significance. We're not sure of the precise. We've got some good, good guesses, but we're not absolutely confident of the precise location of Sychar. But we do know that it was right there by Shechem, which is located between Mount Ebal in the north and Mount Gerizim. Shechem is where Abram first offered sacrifice whenever he came into the promised land. It's where Jacob, when he returned to the promised land, offered up a sacrifice. Jacob, we're told in Genesis 33:19, 19, purchased a piece of land there. And then whenever Jacob is speaking to Joseph in chapter 44 and verse 22 of Genesis, he speaks of land that he won, he conquered. And he wills that to Joseph. And the book of Joshua closes by telling us that the bones of Joseph were buried there. And Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim were where Moses was instructed that Israel was to have a covenant renewal ceremony with half of the tribes on Mount Ebal, half of the tribes at Mount Gerizim pronouncing the blessings and the curses. The blessings in particular being associated with Mount Gerizim, the curses, Mount Ebal. And under Joshua they did so. And then the Samaritans would then revise their Pentateuch so that it was said that Mount Gerizim is where Abraham offered up his son Isaac. Instead of Mount Moriah, which is believed to be where the temple in Jerusalem was built. So they would say, no, that was Mount Gerizim. And then they would also revise the Pentateuch instead of stating blankly, as we have it, that he would have a place for his name to dwell in the promised land. It goes on to spell it out that that place is. Mount Gerizim. And so in 400 BC, they erect a temple on that site. And then to further fuel the animosity between the two, the Jewish leader John Hyrcanus, around 110 BC, destroys that temple. Further, just outside of this town Sychar is Jacob's well. Still marked to this day, fed by a spring, and it is at the sixth hour, noon, in the heat of the day, that we find Jesus having traveled, and in His humanity, weary, sitting beside this well. Jesus had to come here. So that weary and thirsty he could eat the food of offering living water to a Samaritan. No accidents are happening in all of this. No accidents are happening right now. Sinner. If you know. Just like this woman. Look into your own heart. I don't know Jesus. You have not come to the well of the word of God. Without reason this morning. You are not just passing through. You may be here this morning. Because a parent brought you. You may be here. Because a friend. Invited you. You may have come. Because of some need or some desire that really centers on yourself. You may even delude yourself that you are about the water. But you just want the water, as we'll see this woman does, for wrong reasons. You don't really perceive what this water is all about. Leave all that aside. I would plead with you, hear the word of God. And let it carry you along as it does the Samaritan woman. Let Jesus speak by His Word and His Spirit and carry you along with this woman. Deal with you as He does this Samaritan. And not just a Samaritan, but a woman, verse 7. A woman from Samaria. With that, the tension builds The person Jesus encounters at this well is not known by name. And that's not a... just a lack of investigation on John's part. It's not that John just couldn't remember, boy, the Spirit would have really liked for John to record her name. No, this is intentional. This person is known by only two factors her gender and her ethnicity. She is a she, and she is a Samaritan. Now, the significance of her ethnicity, I take, has already been made plain. The significance of her gender can be seen in verse 27. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. And though it dates from a later generation, you can see here the roots that this later rabbinical statement drew on. Which says, A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or daughter, On account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street. Not even with his own wife. And especially not with another woman. On account of what men may say. So the tension of this text is not just the worry of impurity. For dealing with a Samaritan. But the fear of impropriety for speaking with a woman. And so it is with the disciples then away, getting food in the town. Here Jesus is, and he asks this Samaritan woman to give him a drink, and thus she's shocked. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The real shock is not that a thirsty Jewish man would ask a drink from a Samaritan woman. Jesus is not that thirsty. But we can imagine a scenario in which thirst would override all but the strongest of prejudice. It would take precedence over it. It's no shock that thirst could drive a man to break all proprieties, overwhelm all his prejudices, all concern to avoid impurity and ask for a drink. What is utterly unfathomable is that a perfect and holy God who has no want no lack no need infinite possessing satiety of himselfness would take on flesh and thirst so that she might drink jesus asked her for a drink for the purpose that he might Offer drink. That's the astonishing thing. He asks because she is so desperately thirsty. And she doesn't even know it. Sinner. If you're not aware of it. Oh that the spirit would open your eyes to. To this fact by his word this morning. You are desperately thirsty. You are dying, you are dead, dying unto eternal death. You need these living waters, you have no life apart from them. In answer to her puzzlement at his request, Jesus makes an offer if you knew. The gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She is puzzled and Jesus says, You're ignorant. You do not know what the gift of God is and who it is that's offering it to you or you would ask. She thinks she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew. And that those are the critical identities of the two parties involved in this exchange. She doesn't know who she is. And she doesn't know who Jesus is. Sinner, you may think you know who you are. But if you consider yourself chiefly in regard to your ethnicity, your heritage, your cultural background your socioeconomic place, your history, your occupation, if that's how you think of yourself, you know virtually nothing of who you are. Who are you in relation to Jesus? That's the critical question. If you don't know that answer, you know virtually nothing about yourself. You know nothing that's really important as to who you are. Sinner, you may think you know God, but here's the test. If you know Jesus, you ask for this water. You may know about Jesus. I'm saying, if you know Him, In a way where he's spoken to you and you talk back to him. If you know Jesus and he's speaking to you right now by his word and by his spirit. If you know, you will ask for this water. And if you haven't asked, if you don't know this well springing up within you, if you have not asked, you don't know. And if you will ask, just as assuredly, He will give. He will give this water. Displaying her ignorance, she truly is ignorant. Displaying her ignorance of who Jesus is, and naturally, as she is dealing with a stranger... She asks how he's to draw this water. He doesn't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. To this day, it's 100 feet deep. How is he to draw when he has nothing to draw with? Where does he get this living water? Verse 11. Does her ignorance with its wooden literalness remind you of someone? This passage presents a stark contrast with Nicodemus in the previous chapter. You have the reputable Jewish Pharisee coming to Jesus at night, he initiating the conversation. And now you have this Samaritan woman speaking with Jesus at noon. Jesus initiating the conversation. There are so many differences between them, but there's this shared ignorance of who Jesus is and what he's speaking of. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? The most important thing for you to realize about who you are is not what makes you distinct from other persons on this planet. The most important thing for you to realize about who you are is what you share with every other depraved son of Adam that walks this earth. And it's this. You don't know Jesus. We don't know Christ as fallen sons of Adam. And then, as a climactic display of her ignorance, she puts this challenge to Jesus, verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? <laughs> Is he greater than Jacob? Jacob? He's Jacob's ladder as we saw in chapter 1 and verse 51. He is Bethel, the meeting place between God and man. He is the true temple that being destroyed, he will raise again in three days. He is the word who was God and who was was with God and who was God. And he tabernacled, he tented among us in flesh. Is he greater than Jacob? Jacob gave them this well. It still exists to this day. He has nothing to draw with. Where can he get water? He needs no bucket. He needs no well. This is the one who provided the children of Israel, several hundred thousand strong in the wilderness, With water gushing forth and flowing from a rock. Twice. He needs no bucket. He needs no well. Is he greater than Jacob? Yes. He is Jacob's God. And so as to clarify that he is indeed greater than Jacob. He explains. Whoever drinks from this well will thirst again. But the water that he gives will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Through Jeremiah, Yahweh told his people that they had committed two great evils. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two. Two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The religion of the Samaritan woman is a broken cistern. She thinks she has water. She has none. And the fountain of living waters is standing right beside her. And she has no clue. But now... Now she asks, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw this water. She asks, but she does not ask, it is clear, knowingly. She's still asking in ignorance. I think there are two ways she's asking this. Either she's saying, she's still thinking of physical water. I don't want to come here to get water So give me this water so I don't have to come here. So she's either thinking that way, or perhaps I really think this is where she's going. She thinks that she's calling Jesus' bluff. You talk about this water, you don't have a bucket, okay, strange Jewish man, give me this water. Either way, she's asking in ignorance. Perhaps you've asked Jesus to prove himself. Jesus, if you're real, you've tested him. Or perhaps you've come and you want this water just for selfish reasons. It can be as simple as this. You don't like guilt. It's not that you want Jesus. It's not that you really want this water. It's not that you want God and you want forgiveness of sin so you might draw near to him. You just don't want to feel bad. So you ask for this water. She doesn't want to come here anymore. Give me this water. Perhaps it might be. That Jesus who owes you nothing. Will open up to you now by his spirit. Something of who you are. In your true need of him. Jesus answers by a seemingly odd command Go, call your husband, and come here. We'll soon see that this is no abrupt subject change, but this was the very turn needed to open her eyes to who she was and who Jesus was. It's precisely with this turn that we arrive there. Who is this Samaritan woman? Who are you? She, we all, left to ourselves, are thirsty sinners. She discreetly answers Jesus' command. I have no husband. Well, that's true. That's not everything. She hides the embarrassing details and yet not, <laughs> they're not hidden at all. Once again, we see as in 2.24, we are told, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't just know man in a general sense as a depraved lot. He knows this woman specifically. And we learn here something, I believe, of why this woman oddly comes at the heat of the day, at noon to this well. Why does she come at this time? Whenever there would be the least amount of people at the well? Why did she say... Sir, give me this water so I don't have to come here. She wants to avoid these people. Jesus exposes what's hidden. And yet, ask yourself, as you see this conversation unfold, and you know what Jesus is doing, has conviction ever come so gently? And so light a rebuke. Jesus knows who this woman is. He exposes who she is, and yet all the while he is pushing her so gently, so steadily towards him, knowing who he is so that she might ask of him for this living water. And so it is with this, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now again, the Samaritans only receiving the Pentateuch as scripture rejected all the writing prophets, all the other scriptures that you are familiar with. They did believe in a Messiah, the Tahib they called him, the Restorer. But they thought of him dominantly in terms of Deuteronomy 18. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly." When you said, let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. See, whereas the Jews thought of the Messiah dominantly in terms of being a king, the Samaritans thought of the Messiah as being a prophet. And they didn't look for any other prophet. They had no others. They only had the Pentateuch. They were not looking for another prophet except the prophet. So this is quite an astonishing statement for a Samaritan to make. I perceive that you are a prophet, but hey, he's a Jew. And so it's no detour whenever she She's not trying to digress. She's not trying to change the subject whenever she says, You say, but we say. She is bringing before Him. I perceive you're a prophet. But let's get to the most clear representation of the difference between you and us. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We have the hope of the prophet. But you say Jerusalem is the place. We say Mount Gerizim. Which is right there. She's looking at it, no doubt, when she says it. The temple ruins having been destroyed by a Jewish leader sitting on top. Their worship's still going on top of that mountain. On which mountain are we to worship? And Jesus says, your question is very soon to be irrelevant. Indeed, the irrelevance of your question is already Right here. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But Jesus doesn't say that the where is altogether insignificant. Insignificant. He says, verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. He says, what you do, you don't know. It's in it's ignorance. The Jews worship what we know. But the reason things are changing, and this will become clear as Jesus speaks on, is because the Messiah, the promised prophet, priest, and king, is right there in front of her. The reason things are changing is because the true temple is not on Mount Gerizim. Neither is it in Jerusalem. The true temple is right there at the base of that mountain with her. Mount Gerizim was a lie. Jerusalem was a shadow and a type. The true temple. It was the authorized attestation to the temple, the true temple that's right there beside her. The enduringly relevant thing is that true worship is a matter of spirit and truth. Place is important only as a matter of truth. The Jews had that truth, but even they having that truth, many of them are just as ignorant as this Samaritan. Many a Jew had the place right, but the spirit was wrong, and they missed the truth the place attested to, even though they stood closer to its shadow. Matthew 15, Jesus makes fresh application of the indictment Yahweh gave of His people through Isaiah. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's the absence of in spirit. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There's the lack of truth. So the Pharisees like the Samaritans had so perverted the truth. That they too had hewn for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no Water. Just because you're closer to the true gospel preached does not mean you have drank from this well. This woman, with Jesus having told her what she, along with the other Samar- Samaritans, doesn't know, replies by telling him what she does know. Verse 25 I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That's a very Samaritan way of thinking about the Messiah, isn't it? It's in terms of a prophet. He will tell us all things. But it's also a very biblical way of thinking about the Messiah per Deuteronomy 18. That's true. Now, that's what she knows, but it is as nothing compared to what she learns next. Verse 26. I am... Let me read it as you have it in the ESV first. I who speak with you am He. More literally translated, strictly translated, it would be, I am who is speaking to you. The He is supplied. It's not in the original language at all. So cross that out. I who speak to you am. Now the problem is, that the I and the am are not separated by all these other words in the original language. I the first word am is the second word I am who is speaking to you the Messiah who makes all things known the God of Jacob is right there speaking to her making things known she has been in ignorance And through all these twists and turns, Jesus has been driving her straight to this destined end. And now, without any veil, she knows who it is that said to her, give me a drink, so that she might ask. And it's going to be made clear by her actions that without ever asking, that we're, we know of, she asks, and she drinks. We don't get to hear any more of the conversation. The narrative is interrupted by the return of the disciples and they're marveling, verse 27, that Jesus is speaking with a woman. But we do see her actions and every action that's noted is significant. First, she leaves her water jar. She came for water and she left with water. Not water from Jacob's well, but from the well of Christ. And with that so, she returns to the town. The very people that seems highly likely she was seeking to avoid, she engages. Third, she makes the statement, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. She's telling them, He's the prophet. And fourth, she asks this question, which is really the conclusion she's arguing for. She's trying to persuade them in this polite kind of way. She wants them to draw this conclusion that she already has. Can this be the Christ? And that she has indeed come to that conclusion is plain by the way they understand everything she's spoken about as they speak in verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We understood what you were saying was arguing to the point that we've now come to embrace ourselves. And so it is that the crowd hearing this leaves to see this one. And as they're doing so, we listen into a conversation between Jesus and His disciples Having returned, they're concerned for him, they're urging him to eat, and Jesus says he has food to eat that they do not know about, verse 32. So now it's the disciples who are ignorant, and he's going to instruct them. Previously, she didn't know, now they don't know. And like the woman, they miss the metaphor, and they think Jesus is speaking about physical food. Did you give him food? Did you give him food? Jesus' food is work, and the work... That he eats is that of a harvest. And it is a harvest that he's calling for them to realize is ready for the picking. And it's a harvest that they are to participate in. And it's a harvest wherein they will find joy in gathering fruit for eternal life. Verse 36. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Saints, you may be celebrating this morning. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you've led me just as this woman to drink of this well. You may be celebrating that But if you've drank. Eat. Eat this work of the harvest. And eat of it right now where you sit beginning with this. Lord save. You may know the joy of drinking of these waters but do not neglect the joy of working in this harvest. And sometime after Jesus has called them to. Look. Lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Many Samaritans come to Jesus. And note this. We are not told. That they came. Because they were curious. Or skeptical. They came. Because they believed. They didn't believe because they came. They came because they believed. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. This Samaritan woman demonstrates the very truth that Jesus has just laid before the disciples. They come. This is again stating that she wasn't saying, "Hey, maybe this could be the Messiah." She's wanting them to draw that conclusion, and they come to that conclusion because of her testimony. And you know, it was so much more full and robust than what we have in our text. It's a glorious exchange. But they believe because of her testimony. She is drink, she has drunk, and now she's eating. And at their request, Jesus stays two more days. And as he stays with them, verse 41, many more believe. Now, just before the conversation with Nicodemus, after he's cleansed the temple, we read this. John 2, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Nicodemus himself said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs. You see the seeing signs thing that's happening with the Jews. On the other side of this, Jesus comes to Galilee and he speaks of a prophet not having honor in his hometown. When he came to Galilee, Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. This is an odd way of saying they didn't show him honor. They showed him honor by welcoming him. They showed him honor by welcoming him because they had seen honor. All that he had done in Jerusalem. They're just like their Judean neighbors. They're Jews. The Jews search for signs, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. But here, these Samaritans believe because of this woman's testimony. And then they say, Oh, we believe. Now, all the more we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard ourselves. Sinner, this is where this text is driving. Not because I've said it, but because by the Word and the Spirit of God, I pray you've heard from Christ Himself this offer of living water from the one that make this glorious confession, from the one who is indeed the Savior of the world. Those of whom Jesus has said, you worship what you do not know. Now worship in spirit and in truth, making a confession like the Jews never did. You are indeed the Savior of the world. This recalls John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send a Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him." But this exact phrase "savior of the world" is only used by John, and it's only used by John one other time in his first letter. And the harmony with this text is glorious. First John four thirteen through sixteen. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. That's the water. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. That is that Fountain of living water bubbling up into eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus prays, to know you and the Son whom you have sent. The Father sent His Son into the world to seek true worshipers. And He gathers them by saving them. And though salvation is of the Jews, here He is gathering this harvest among the Samaritans. Do you have this well of life springing up in you? Do you have the Spirit? Have you confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world? If you have been in ignorance, you are no longer. Jesus has testified of who he is by his word. Receive this gift. Hear his summons. Ask of him this water and he will give it. Know that he can give you this water. Because he died in the stead of sinners. Bearing the wrath of God and judgment in in their place. And because He rose from the grave and stands ready and alive today to bid you drink of this living water found in union with Him, the resurrection and the life, if you would entrust yourself to Him, repent of the broken cisterns from which you're trying to draw life, and entrust, throw yourself On him, knowing only he can satisfy. He is Savior, he is Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father. We cry out again. Save the lost among us here today by your grace for your glory. We pray we would lift up our eyes, we would see these fields white for harvest. We pray we would experience anew and afresh the joy of that harvest. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com